Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This week on The Wheelhouse. Debt Ceiling 101. And a little later, Freedom of Information. For Connecticut Public, I'm Frankie Graziano. This is The Wheelhouse, the show that connects politics to the people. We got your weekly dose of politics in Connecticut and beyond right here. If you were out having a weekend and you weren't paying attention to the news, we got a deal. The White House and House Republicans agreed on a plan to raise the debt ceiling. It ain't over yet, though. The plan has to be approved by federal lawmakers in the U.S. House and Senate. And they got to move quick. They've been told that they have until June 5th to avoid a debt default. For a little debt ceiling 101, we're joined by my colleague, my good friend, all the way from Capitol Hill right now, Lisa Hagan, federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Public and Connecticut Mirror. Good morning, Lisa. Hey, it's good to be back with you. Great to have you. Great to have you online as well. And if people want to join us in the conversation, they could call us 888-720-9677, 888-720-9677. Maybe you want to ask Lisa, you want to give her a quiz here and say, what did member of Congress X say about this deal? No, don't do that. Leave her alone this morning. But hey, we're here to answer your questions. Before we get into the specifics of this deal, though, what exactly is the debt ceiling and why are we hearing so much about it, Lisa? Yeah, it gets a little wonky, but it's it's a really big deal. It's basically Congress's borrowing limit. And so it's how much can they borrow and making sure that the U.S. Treasury can pay the government's bills. And so we hear a lot of talk about spending. That's usually what the fight kind of circulates around. It doesn't deal with authorizing any new spending, though. So this is all bills, major bills that we've seen passed probably over the last few years and making sure that we're covering them and that we can, you know, not default on our debt. It doesn't limit future spending, but all of a sudden we're having this conversation about future spending. Can you just tell me about that nuance there? Yeah, exactly. So this is basically the crux of many of these debt ceiling fights. So we've, you know, Congress has raised the debt ceiling numerous times over many, many decades, and the fight usually drills down to limits over spending or a lot of the times Republicans pushing spending cuts. And so sometimes you've seen Congress do what would be called a clean debt ceiling, you know, bill, either it's raising it for a certain amount of time, suspending the debt limit for a certain, you know, X amount of time. And so uh, this fight, like many before it, has been over, you know, potential spending cuts and, and adding some extraneous measures into it, basically. We had weeks of tense negotiations, and really this was kind of set in motion by the uh, midterms in November. Seems like we have a deal. Uh, What does the deal look like? 
It's it's a big one. I mean, Republicans did not get all what they wanted, but there are some spending cuts in there, mostly when it comes to domestic programs. It's basically that non-defense spending uh, on the actual debt limit itself, because that is really what we're talking about here. It suspends it for two years. And so that'll take us to about early 2025. The main kind of takeaway there is that it'll get us all through the 2024 election which always makes passing bills in Congress very difficult. So uh, it'll basically deal with that and take care of that through 2025. Uh, exactly as I said, spending cuts, maybe not as deep as some anticipated or that Republicans were pushing for, but it has a lot of other measures in there. It imposes uh, basically stronger work requirements for people to access SNAP benefits, which was formerly known as food stamps, uh, other kind of you know domestic uh, welfare programs, they weren't as stringent of restrictions as we thought they might be, but that made it in there. And then also, uh, you know, clawing back some IRS funding, IRS enforcement, and even on student loans, basically saying that President Biden wouldn't be able to freeze uh, repayments again, basically, unless of another national emergency. You've been profiling the impact that it might have on SNAP. And I know that you talked to Congresswoman from Connecticut, Johanna Hayes. Uh, do you get the sense of how she might feel about this and if those uh, stronger work requirements uh, are really going to be impactful, I guess? Yeah, I I don't know how she's going to vote yet. Most people of Connecticut's delegation haven't quite indicated. The only one I know for sure that will vote for it is Congressman Jim Himes, who said it yesterday on Where We Live. Um, But yeah, Hayes and, and same with Senator Richard Blumenthal, they had really taken issue with stronger work requirements. And so once we saw what the bill parameters and deal would look like, it, it definitely is a bit watered down. It would raise the age uh, for basically adults with no dependents. So basically they'd have to work at least 20 hours a week or do something kind of related with training uh, up until, you know, they basically under age 55. And so currently the age limit is at 50. They originally wanted to make it to 56. And so again, a little watered down. And, but I think the biggest notable exception is that it does not apply to veterans. It doesn't apply to people experiencing homelessness and to young adults phasing out of the foster care program. So I think since it's not as stringent as it once looked like, I think that will probably make some Connecticut Democrats feel better. I know none of them are probably thrilled with this deal, but that might help them get over the line and vote for this. Speaking of Himes, he was on Connecticut Public's Where We Live yesterday, as you mentioned. Heim says he and his colleagues will vote on it today. He'll be a yay, but only because the deal is better than what House Republicans were negotiating. The good news is the president and uh, the Democrats negotiated it down to a measly little package that will make nobody happy, but really doesn't have much impact. A measly little package that'll make nobody happy. Did he nail it or not? What do you think, Lisa? That's basically what Democrats are echoing. It is the messaging that they're kind of doing across the board is that Republicans asked and voted on a lot more. And and that is true that they asked for deeper spending cuts and again, stronger work requirements and, and what have you. And so that is the line that Democrats are taking. Again, there are many of them or some of them, at least that are very concerned with it, who frankly won't vote for it. But basically, to get this bill across the line, and it seems like, again, the House will take that vote on it later today, it's incumbent on Democrats to really put up the votes because there are, you know, two dozen or even more Republicans who are who are hard no against it. And so uh, that is exactly the same sentiment that Senator Chris Murphy echoed, that the president seemed to keep 
some of the most, I think what he said, kind of egregious parts of the GOP bill out of this deal. And so that is what we're hearing. And I think that's how some Democrats are going to stomach voting for this. You're talking about Democrats echoing it. Do you, do you feel like Republicans feel the same way? They, they, they kind of echoing that sentiment as well? Republicans have their own line of messaging, and it's kind of the flip side of that. They wanted the spending cuts to go much deeper. They wanted to look like this bill that they passed, I guess, several weeks ago now. And so it's, it's you know, these members that are part of the Freedom Caucus is this more hardline conservative Republicans mm-hmm. who always talk about lowering the deficit and doing a lot more spending cuts. And, you know, they were basically promises and trying to get their vote what we saw at the beginning of the year, which was getting uh, Speaker McCarthy through as leader of the of the House Republicans. And so they're frustrated that this got negotiated down quite a bit with President Joe Biden. And so they're saying they're out. And so at, at this point, again, because there are so many Republicans against this, Democrats are going to have to make it up and there will be some Democratic holdouts, some people that will not vote for this. And so we'll have to see whether that's anyone from Connecticut or just how many. Thoughts on the debt ceiling deal? Thoughts on the process? Maybe you're a member of the Freedom Caucus. Give us a call, 860, or excuse me, 888-720-9677. That number one more time, 888-720-9677. What happens next? Do we expect any challenges in either the, the House or the Senate? I know there's a vote today in the House. What, what's, the, what's it look like going forward? Yeah, so today's really the big day. I mean, they got it through this committee yesterday that basically is the first hurdle to moving it to the House floor through the House Rules Committee. And so they got it through that, which is not an easy feat. And so today we're going to, I think, see the full, full vote today. And so it's really, it's whether Republicans, whether Speaker McCarthy can get, I think as people are saying, the majority of his majority to vote for it. And then, again, as I said, Democrats having to make up for the lack of GOP votes. And so um, it it seems like they're fairly confident this will get through. Uh, And then once it gets through or if it gets through the House, it moves to the Senate, which is its whole other, basically a whole other beast. Oh, certainly. Why is June 5th the deadline to reach an agreement? That's one, two, three, four, five days away. Why is June 5th the deadline to reach an agreement? Yeah, Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had, I feel like when we were all talking about the debt limit, it, it, there was not really a deadline. It was pretty ambiguous. I think she and others thought it was actually going to be later in the summer. So I think everyone thought they had a little bit more time to sit and breathe with this, which probably would have only delayed negotiations even longer. And so she had originally come out with what they call a next date of June 1st. And so I guess by her, her department's estimates, that is the, you know, that was the time where U.S. basically maxed out what they could pay back. And so they were saying, you know, once we hit this date, that X date, we have to start making decisions of basically what we're going to fund and what we're going to be able to pay. And so as we watched all this play out and negotiations kind of go back and forth, not really knowing what was going to happen, she had said to Congress, actually, you know, the more precise date is June 5th. And again, I think a lot of these are all estimates. So maybe it would even be a little bit later, but she had set this new June 5th date and she had told Congress, hey, I'm going to be able to pay the bills for paying veterans and for Medicare and Social Security payments that would be happening, I think, in the next day or two. And so I think that basically takes them through early next week. And so um, it it would be kind of amazing to see Congress pass this 
well before the deadline, which is unlike them. But uh, at least as of right now, they have till June 5th. And again, I you you always have to wonder how much wiggle room is really there. But if they don't pass it, I don't seem like it, it doesn't seem like this is going to happen. But if they don't, and there's this debt default, what could that mean? Yeah, it, again, it, it does seem like they're going to pull this one through, even though it's a nail biter. And, we, and we've seen this play out before. But um, we I think it's hard to say exactly what would happen because this is unprecedented. We've never defaulted on our debt before. And so, uh, again, it's going to make it hard to make payments to veterans, Medicare, Social Security. We could risk having a recession. And I think depending on how long it would take to either increase or suspend the debt limit, a longer default could have bigger ramifications. So we could see it hitting retirement accounts. I think uh, Congressman Heim said yesterday on where we live that it would just be chaos in the markets. And so uh, I imagine, and, and it would really, this would be a ripple effect in, you know, across the country and in Connecticut, but it would really have implications all around the country. And I think one of the biggest things is that it just risks U.S. credibility. It just shows that we are, you know, not making our commitments on paying our bills. And I think we're usually seen as a pretty reliable country. And I think uh, this would shake the faith in a lot of a lot of countries and leaders around the world and, and what the U.S. can do. Has it ever happened before? No, I think I had read that there has been a time where we hadn't made a payment. Uh, and, I, and I think we had eventually, once this got passed, they had paid it back with interest. But we have never defaulted before. So I think that is why it is so hard to quantify exactly what the ramifications would be. You know, we've seen in this country, we've seen Congress basically not fund the government we've seen government shutdowns but this would be a whole other a whole other monster and i don't think we would know the extent of the impact and i guess depending on how long it would take to pass one it, it could just get worse as time goes on you're right now in a, in a grilling session I, we're going back and forth here and you're killing it and knocking it out of the park if anybody wants to join in on this, they have many questions. 888-720-9677, 888-720-9677. The home run hitter this hour is Lisa Hagan, federal policy reporter for Connecticut Public and the Connecticut Mirror. You said Himes. We talked a little bit about Hayes. I just want to bring up something that Chris Murphy had said. Uh, I believe it was last week as the negotiations were happening. You know, we got Republicans saying that there's too much spending, but then there's... Chris Murphy and Democrats saying that this is because of debt rung up during the Trump administration. I kind of want to get the sense of how we got here. Who's to blame, Lisa? What do you think? Oh, it's always it's always a blame game. In Chris. Yeah. Um, or just so crystallizes the discussion around the blame game for us. Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, again, I think we when we think about this fight over the debt limit, it always kind of amounts to we've spent too much, we need to rein in our new spending. But again, this is just paying back bills. And so uh, it's hard for me to say exactly which which money we're paying back. And again, you can look at the last few years where Democrats were fully in control and, and Democrats passed bills like the infrastructure bill and we passed Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, we saw that happen in Congress. But, um, you know, Democrats basically look to Republicans and say, you had that big tax cut bill in I think it was 2017 under the Trump administration. And that actually increased the deficit. And that's something that Republicans are always very against. That's why they typically don't want new spending and they want to see spending cuts, but that they've basically said that Republicans have done this. And so 
Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of blaming. It's a lot of, uh, I mean, it basically just comes down to paying back the bills and, and needing to do this in order to avoid what would probably be really catastrophic for the economy. And why is there this political back and forth on it and so much drama? So much drama. I mean, this is, you know, because Congress has gotten, it's gotten so tough to govern and it's just gotten even more partisan. A lot of the times you just don't see a ton of legislation coming through because it is just hard to agree on stuff. And and especially last two years and then in these new majorities, they're really narrow majorities. And so it's really hard to get everyone to have consensus and you're making compromise and concessions. And so I think you know, members look to venues like this, chances like this, where they, they have no choice. They have to act on this and they use it as a way to kind of get at other legislation and get at other policies that they want. And so this is, you know, same similar fight that happens with government funding, which we'll see. <laughs> we'll see again at the, uh, you know, basically fall. And so I think that they try to use this to sneak in measures. And a lot of the time, you know, we used to be able to, you know, see clean measures and legislation being passed and and now this is a chance for lawmakers to try to negotiate and get what they want oh it's so sad that our time together is coming to an end we got about a couple minutes left here and i just want to spend it talking about the impact this could have in connecticut by this federal debt limit fight what can happen to connecticut residents why we we tease at the top of the show what does it mean for you and me what does it mean for people in connecticut yeah, again, I, I don't know if it's any unique impacts in Connecticut. I think, you know, people in Connecticut will see, you know, what everyone around the country would see, which is, you know, again, pay, not payments not being made to to federal programs, especially this would be probably pretty problematic for seniors since you might not be able to make payments for Medicare and Social Security. But I, I mean, because I really it seems to look like this will pass. I think what this new bill could mean for Connecticut is again, like if you're someone that has a get SNAP benefits and you're someone who is under the age of 55 and you know, you're not one of those, you know, exceptions that I named veterans or you're not experiencing homelessness or getting out of foster care, you might need to now get a job and at least work basically part time to be able to access full SNAP benefits. If, if basically, if you don't, if you don't work a certain amount, you get a very scant amount of, of food stamps. And so um, that would have a pretty big effect. Again, I think, you know, student loan repayments, that's something that uh, Biden basically would no longer have the power to freeze if he needed to do that again under, again, emergency circumstances. And so um, uh, it, it's a lot of it's basically a lot of that, basically more so what this bill would do and what they would affect. But Democrats say because Republicans didn't get as much of what they want, it will have little impact. And so we'll have to see basically how this all plays out. I got a phone call. I'm going to squeeze in here. It comes from Jeff in Southington. Quick, Jeff, your comment. We only got about a minute left in the segment. Go ahead, Jeff. Thank you for calling. Okay, so my question for Lisa is, uh, Lisa, what do you think the Republican rationale for wanting to reduce IRS funding by $20 billion was when that would actually increase the deficit? And then what would your response to them be? Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, I, this is something that Republicans were really opposed to when Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act last year. It was more IRS enforcement. And so I think Republicans uh, typically demonize or, and are not fans of the IRS. They worry that, especially because in the past, there's been what they say is conservative bias against it. Um, they don't want to give more funding to it. 
But you're right that this was in Democrats, this was in the Inflation Reduction Act to try to reduce inflation and reduce the deficit. And so uh, this was their way of being able to basically take some money out of that and basically uh, deflate their Inflation Reduction Act a bit. Just knock that question out of the park. Love it. We got less than 30 seconds left. All of a sudden there's urgency in my voice. What should we all be thinking about ahead of this June 5th deadline? Should people be worried? No, I, I don't think so. I think we'll we should be able to see a resolution at least in the House today. With, you know, it, it will it will potentially probably it looks like it's going to pass. And then I think just looking forward uh, to the Senate, basically any one of the hundred senators can stall something. And so I think if we see that, that could really take us up to the June fifth deadline. And so that could at least stall things a little bit more. Lisa Hagan, the head of Connecticut Publics. Washington caucus. I love talking about caucuses. Thank you so much for coming on today and really shedding light on on this topic and really helping us with the debt ceiling, which is something that is much talked about, but really hard to crystallize into a local discussion. And man, you hit it out of the park. Thank you for coming on, Lisa. Thanks, Frankie. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Back soon with more on The Wheelhouse. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is The Wheelhouse from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano, and we're going to pivot now from debt ceiling conversation to Connecticut's probation practices. And we're doing this because of great reporting from somebody who's joining me in a second. But according to a new report, Connecticut uses probation more aggressively than other states. Nearly three times as many people are under probation and parole as are incarcerated in the state of Connecticut. For more on this, we're joined by Alex Putterman, reporter for Connecticut Insider, CT Insider, I always have to say both of them, slash uh, Hearst Connecticut Media. We want to make sure that Dan Har is happy and we say the right thing. CT Insider, great reporter, Alex Putterman. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to join the conversation, they want to call us right now, they can dial in 888-720-9677. 
I, before we get into the report itself, how do probation and parole in Connecticut typically work? Yeah, so it, it, it's very complicated and, and just sort of the quick version. Um, probation is you are in, in you're not incarcerated. Instead, you are on probation. That means that if you commit an additional offense, you are likely to be uh, you know, pulled back into the system and incarcerated or you're already in the system on probation. Um, so it is considered kind of a, a obviously lighter than incarceration, but some advocates would argue still a substantial punishment in itself because you are under this supervision. Um, parole, it's it very complicated and there are different types of parole, but basically, you know, uh, typically if somebody is incarcerated, they might have an opportunity to apply for parole. They get out early. Um, now they're on parole. They're also, you know, in this system under supervision in sort of a different way than probation, you know, under different offices, different auspices, um, but, you know, similar, but but kind of subtly different. All within that Connecticut judicial branch. What exactly did this new report find about those practices in the state? Yeah, so this report sort of just looked at the scope of the of, of supervision um, in Connecticut. Uh, probation more so than parole is sort of a big part of, of Connecticut's judicial system. I think that number, 30,000 people, that's nearly 1% of the state population. It's far more than is incarcerated. And I think many people don't sort of realize that um, so many people, you know, might be your neighbor. It might be, you know, somebody you walk by in the grocery store um, is in proba- is on probation, is sort of in the system in this sort of invisible way. And then a, sort of a separate report um, from the Prison Policy Initiative compared Connecticut against every other state. And it was interesting because I think in Connecticut, we kind of think of ourselves as this sort of liberal state with, um, you know, a more lenient, certainly as compared to some of the more conservative states in the South, a more lenient judicial system. And in terms of incarceration, that's true. But in terms of probation, it's not so true. We're in the top half of states when it comes to probation. I want to talk more about Connecticut's probation practices and how they use probation for people that are in the system. But I just want to, you talked about the organizations behind the report, the Catal Center and the Prison Policy Initiative. Who are these groups? Just for transparency's sake. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. These are nonprofit groups. Um, The Catal Center is based in Connecticut and New York. The Prison Policy Initiative is is national. Um, Both kind of come from a reformist uh, perspective of, of limiting the size of the justice system. And then... Connecticut comparing to other states and using probation and parole. Could you zoom in on that a little further? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So uh, Connecticut is one of the lowest states when it comes to its incarcerated population, which I think sort of fits with what you might expect Connecticut as as more of a a blue state. And and Governor Malloy in particular had kind of a criminal justice reform um, platform. But when it comes to probation, we are 20th out of the 50 states in terms of uh, population on probation. And, you know, we're ahead of uh, many of our neighboring states like New York and Massachusetts and other uh, states in New England. But we're also ahead of some states that you wouldn't really expect. Um, you know, I don't have it right in front of me, but but some of the more conservative states that that uh, do tend to be more aggressive when it comes to uh criminal justice policy. This is from the CT News Junkie. The findings reveal the pattern of mass punishment in Connecticut, even surpassing the rates in conservative states. I'm just helping you out here, such as Kansas, North Carolina, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Utah. <laughs> These are some of the states we think about when we, when we tend to be conservative. It's like with with uh, with uh, early, uh, early voting and talking about how there's only four states that don't implement it, and you're talking about Mississippi as one of those uh, states 
and uh, there's another state that's in the south, and then there's Connecticut, and it's uh, it's one of those surprising things. Uh, Connecticut's usage of, of probation more aggressive in recent years, uh, or is this part of an ongoing trend? Yeah, so that's a nuanced question because in Connecticut, as in many states, the size of the the justice system has has shrunk over the years. Um, there are far fewer people incarcerated now than there were 10, 20 years ago. There are far fewer people on probation now than there were 10, 20 years ago. And that's because of um, sort of, I would say, shifting you know political wins uh, and also some of those reform policies. However, in both incarceration and probation, the numbers have ticked up ever so slightly after reaching lows during the pandemic, which some people will tell you is just, you know, things shut down during the pandemic, everything ground to a halt, and now we're back in the flow of things and uh, the numbers are coming back up. And then there's also in the sort of advocate world, there's sort of a concern that there's a backlash underway. And we see this in a, a little bit with the debate over commutations, which I know your show has touched on before, um, where there is this sort of desire to be a little bit harsher again. And and we're far, just to be totally clear, we're, we're far from the levels of incarceration and probation that we were at in the 90s or 2000s, which was really kind of the tough on crime era. But for some people, including some of the people behind this report, there's a concern that it could be very slowly ticking back in that direction. Could be because of those shifting political winds you mentioned. That's when we talk about commutations, right? It's yeah. like a, such a such a change in the last five or six months because of uh, the the work that Republicans did to to turn that kind of over. Exactly, who is impacted by these aggressive uh, practices? Uh, where are the disparities? Yeah, I think, you know, it, you always see the same patterns when it comes to criminal justice. Um, poor people are more likely to be arrested, incarcerated, put on probation, etc. So are black people, uh, Latino people, um, these groups that that just are, are more often more heavily policed. And, and you see these same disparities sort of at all levels of the justice system. And probation and parole impacting people are these... <laughs> Are they just really kind of alternative forms of our incarceration? Yeah, I think that's a question where it depends who you ask. You know, somebody is going to say, well, it makes sense that Connecticut has more people on probation because instead of incarcerating people, we're putting them on probation and that's not as bad. They get to be out in the community and, and living their lives. And then somebody else is going to say that may be true, but probation is its own form, like you just said, of, of punishment of, you know, incarceration in a in a broad sense because you know you're under this supervision that that you and I sitting here are not under and you are one little slip up away from from being in prison and i think it's important to note that the way you know people think of okay you're on probation you commit another offense you go back to prison that's true but also if you're on probation and you you know miss a meeting or a few meeting you know with your probation officer you can wind up back in prison um, any little kind of slip up risks your freedom. And so in that way, I think these activists sort of caution against viewing probation as, you know, an alternative, as a softer alternative to incarceration. And, and they kind of view it as as more of a more of a, a separate form of, of punishment. I just want to underscore your reporting a little more here. Uh, this is in CT Insider. 
Black and Latino people are far more likely than white people to be on parole or probation, as data shows. Alex also says that as of 2021, nearly half of people on parole in Connecticut were black, even though black people accounted for only 13% of the state population. This is data from the uh, Board of Pardons and Paroles. For years, Connecticut had been working, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, to cut down its incarcerated population. Really, we're starting to see states do this nationally as, as the justice system gets a little bit smaller. How do we square that with what we're seeing in terms of probation and parole? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting moment right now, and we're going to have to keep an eye on it in the years to come, whether this is sort of the start of of some sort of backlash or whether it is just, you know, I mean, we all know that that COVID and the height of the pandemic sort of screwed up a lot of data and a lot of systems, and it's hard to know exactly what effects that's still having. But the commutations fight has, has really kind of raised my eyebrow a little bit in that it's clear that the appetite for Connecticut to continue to be sort of on the on the vanguard of the criminal justice reform movement, that appetite is maybe a little bit more limited, um, at least, you know, in the, the annals of power at the Capitol, because, you know, it, it did not take long uh, when the commutations issue came up for, for a lot of heads to get together and to, to dial back there. That's something that if this were 10 years ago under Governor Malloy and when the criminal justice reform movement was sort of in full swing, that was something that maybe would have played out a little differently, I think. I mean, it, you know, we can't know for sure. I think we saw in 2020 with the George Floyd protests, it, unprecedented momentum for, for these types of changes. And then I think in many places, in many cases in 2021, we saw sort of the opposite, a little bit of pushback um, and a desire to, to roll back on some of those things. I'm rushing a little bit because we only got a minute left. I could have this conversation with you all day. I'm really interested in this topic, obviously. But we, we talk about this uh, this concept of, of community supervision. People don't want people in prison. So in this short 30 seconds or so, how can Connecticut work to kind of correct its probation and parole practices? What reforms could be implemented so that people aren't ending up in prison? Maybe you're, they're in probation and parole, but they're not going back. Yeah, so New York passed a suite of reforms um, somewhat recently that, um, you know, these groups have kind of praised and said that Connecticut could model themselves after that have have sort of reduced the instances in which you would be returned to prison, um, you know, so that you're not being incarcerated for what they call technical violations, which is just when you, you know, miss a meeting or or, or something like that, as opposed to another offense. Um, They also implemented um, earned time credits for people under state supervision so that if you don't get into trouble, you're... Uh, your supervision ends a little bit earlier. So those are some of the things that, you know, in the future, Connecticut could think about if if the momentum and the energy is there to do so. Great conversation on probation and parole in Connecticut and practices the state has been exhibiting lately. Thank you so much to Alex Putterman, reporter for CT Insider and Hearst Connecticut Media. Thank you so much for coming on, Alex. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. It continues after this. Call 888-720-9677, 888-720-9677, if you want to talk about potential changes to the Freedom of Information Act in Connecticut.
You're back on the wheelhouse with Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Just wanted to say something that uh, somebody tweeted us about the last segment. Probation and parole often have onerous conditions that present barriers to employment, as well as affect entire families who are supporting people in reentry. It's living in the community without being able to fully participate it. And this person, Amber Speaks Up, thinks that it needs to change. Thank you so much for tweeting us and participating. You can also call us if you want to talk today, 888-720-9677. Before we go anywhere forward, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. A big part of a journalist's job is to file something called a FOIA request. FOIA stands for Freedom of Information Act. It's a law that enables member of the public to request records from the government. We have both the federal and Connecticut FOIA law currently on the books. But in Connecticut, there are efforts happening right now to chip away at this law. For more on this, we got two great guests. Man, the, this show has been amazing today. Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief from the Connecticut Mirror and good friend of mine. Good morning, Paz. Good morning. I hope you're doing well this morning, uh, Paz. We almost got a budget coming out. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. You know, the Connecticut Senate uh, kept me up well past my bedtime, uh, but that's okay. That's what we do this time of year. What dedication. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. And Seth Stern, he's the director of advocacy for the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Big time guest here. Thank you so much for coming on, Seth. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. People want to join in on the conversation. I'll give you the number one more time. 888-720-9677-888-96. Oh my Lord, I can't even spell today. 888-720-9677. Before we get into the specific of the bills, can you explain what the state's Freedom of Information Act is, Mark? Well, very simply, uh, since its passage in the 70s, it creates a presumption that any document produced by government is public. Uh, of course, ever since the passage of that law uh, in the 70s, uh, there have been exemptions uh, created. Uh, and it's a long list. It gets longer every year. When I came to Connecticut and started my career as a reporter, the list of exemptions from the Freedom of Information Act could fit on a card <laughs> that uh, sat in my wallet. And uh, today, that would take a small booklet. <laughs> oh, simpler times. What What about the bills currently before lawmakers that would curtail the Freedom of Information Act in Connecticut? And I guess maybe, uh, maybe add a, a bunch of a bunch more cards and fatten up that wallet of yours, Mark. Well, the two bills that passed the Senate are the latest in a long series of, of efforts to sort of weigh the, the, this tension between privacy and public safety versus public records. Um, and I'm sure Seth will speak to this uh, from a national perspective. But one of the great ironies is that the ease of disseminating information in the digital age has become the rationale for curtailing what government records are deemed to be public. So um, Senate Bill 1157 um, would bar any public agency from disclosing the home addresses of their employees. Um, this follows years of adding to the list of home residences that would be exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. You know, we're talking about judges, police officers, 
correction officers. And with this bill, which was sought by public sector unions, it's basically let's give up this exercise of adding to the list and we're just going to exempt everyone. Um, and then the other bill, 11, uh, Senate Bill 1153, would exempt uh, public higher education files um, that arise from teaching or research on medical, artistic, scientific, legal, or other scholarly issues. Um, and this is something that reflects what we've seen nationally as well. It responds to the concern about the weaponization of uh, FOI laws. Um, in Connecticut, they did not really offer any uh, examples of, of serious harassment. There have certainly been uh, stories along those lines nationally. But in Connecticut, it was pretty much anecdotal. But again, this was something that uh, public sector unions wanted the democratic majority in both uh, and, and on both bills uh, voted in favor and the republican minority was in opposition two really quick things uh first uh there's on ctmirror.org there was this uh, viewpoint from david deroche he's an old uh, colleague of mine and he says uh the FOIA limiting bill would give public universities carte blanche to operate in secret is that is that the fear here that some journalists might have around this this bill here on uh, dealing with higher education i think that uh overstates it but it certainly it this puts off limits all access to a lot of information that journalists and others have used in the past to uh, perform oversight duties looking at public uh, higher education. Uh, the article you mentioned that David wrote uh, referred to a couple of those things, including uh, the, uh, the discovery of how experiments were being conducted on animals, uh, I believe, at the University of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that, that's the issue here. When you close the door this tightly, um, how much oversight do you lose? And, you know, this is something we've struggled with for a long, long time. Um, in Connecticut, uh, in the old days, you used to be able to run uh, license plates. And I worked on a story with another reporter a very long time ago about it was a ticket fixing scandal in Hartford. And the only way that we could tell that there were a bunch of politically connected people who benefited from the ticket fixing that was going on at City Hall in the late 1980s. Just the fact that there, um, the the license plates that were on the tickets that we were able to see, we could trace them. Today, you couldn't do that story. And that's, again, it's been a slow but steady erosion of what is public in Connecticut and, quite frankly, a lot of other states. Seth, as someone whose job is all about preserving press freedoms, how would you characterize the potential impact of these proposals? Really would value this opinion. Well, in terms of the proposal on public officials' addresses, we've seen similar stuff pop up all over the country at both the state and federal level. And look, I'm not looking to downplay safety concerns, but they need to be balanced with First Amendment rights. You know, journalists need to investigate whether politicians live in the districts they represent, whether a real estate transaction evidences corruption. There are any number of applications. And you, you can go back on the national level to the Pentagon Papers case, where the government argued that disclosure of those documents would jeopardize national security. 
And the Supreme Court famously noted the danger of overusing vague security concerns as justification to ignore the First Amendment. And the same principle applies when you're talking about personal safety. You know, there are any number of ways to find out where someone lives. Are there examples of a politician being stalked, assaulted, um, originating from a public records request? You know, I'm not aware of any. That's all hypothetical. But there are real examples of these kinds of laws being used to retaliate against legitimate journalism. Um, we've been dealing with a case uh, over the last month or so in Arizona where a state senator got a restraining order against a journalist who was knocking on their door to investigate whether they lived where they claimed to live. That's all that was alleged, no assault or anything like that. And one of the arguments made by the senator's lawyer was that Arizona's recent passage of a very similar uh, law uh, limiting access to politicians' addresses could be used as evidence that politicians' addresses are are secret and that's, that, that it's appropriate to restrain journalists from even knocking on their doors. So, you know, slippery slope is an overused term, but 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 it's a real concern here. These the, these kinds of laws really can abuse can be abused. And when you start throwing around safety and security um, anecdotally without any evidence and infringing on the First Amendment based on those vague concerns, uh, once you give politicians that power, there are a lot of places they can go with it. Damn, uh, t- tough time to be a, a journalist at the at, at this time uh, when you're describing this situation with the state senator and the restraining order. What? Uh, just zooming in a, a little um, a little more deep here, you talked about the addresses and that sort of being something that we're seeing nationally. With what's Mark describing, uh, is this more or less in line with other states? the addresses, maybe higher education, asking for more help from the state to protect themselves from FOIAs. Could you just get dive a little deeper here? Well, yeah, the, well, the address... I'm, I'm sorry, was that... Go ahead, Seth, Seth, that question was to you. Sorry, go ahead, Seth. Sorry about that. The addresses, yes, we've seen that um, in, in several states. Um, Arizona and Georgia are the most recent, I believe. I could be wrong on that, but 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 numerous others. So it's not necessarily unique to any to any one state. Um, And at the federal level, there was a bill passed at the end of last year uh, pertaining to judges that not only restricted judges' personal, uh, judges' addresses, but their entire families and the families of their families, and not only addresses, but information about, you know, where they work, where they go to school, uh, so on. And, and, you know, some of the controversies involving uh, Justice Thomas's spouse and have underscored the the concerns with with that. Um, As far as the academic research angle i haven't really seen that um elsewhere you know but but that's really concerning because from at least the 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 coverage i've read of that bill the concern is not with safety the motivating concern there the concern is that um correspondence relating to academic research could be used to defame or disparage researchers or take their work out of context and that is not how the First Amendment works. We don't restrict the flow of information just to stop people from mischaracterizing it. You know, if someone misrepresents what you said or takes your words out of context, you correct the record. And universities have a, fl- a platform to do that. And if someone lies about you and causes you damages, you can you can sue for defamation. We have that remedy. But we don't address hypothetical future misstatements by you know, not letting potential liars get their hands on information they might lie about. That's that that's fundamentally un-American. And, you know, of course, 
the court of public opinion is messy and, and causes people headaches. But we, we, we decided a few centuries back in the United States that we tolerate those headaches because we believe in free speech. Mark, what would these proposals mean for people like you and I that work in Connecticut? Is this well, going to affect uh, the, how we do the FOIA? Sure. Um, the loss of home addresses, uh, it's not the, the, the biggest loss <laughs> under freedom of information. But, you know, we, we, use, we use this stuff for fairly routine way, you know, purposes. Um, you see a reference to somebody who you think is a public official and, and you know, it may be a, a criminal case. It may be civil uh, litigation. And one of the ways you verify that is the person you think is you get the home address and you compare it to what's in the public record from the state agency or municipal agency. And the loss of that makes that more difficult. Um, there are other cases in which, you know, we've certainly looked at um, somebody who there are perhaps allegations that they have uh, outside employment that is a conflict um, and you might look at their house, uh, you know, if there's somebody making, uh, $75,000 in public salary and they're living in a $4 million house, that could be relevant to your reporting. So, you know, it, and again, uh, this is not in and of itself the, the biggest assault on freedom of information that I've seen, but it, it certainly is a, is a complication. But again, it, it, this, this stuff mostly I think arises from concerns less less about journalists than about um, the broader public, you know, the use of doxing, right? To, you know, the fact that anybody can publish on social media has mm -hmm. changed this debate. You know, in the old days, nobody was worried about a newspaper publishing the home addresses mm -hmm. of every state employee. But, you know, uh, on, on, uh, on, on Facebook or, or whether on the web, you know, that kind of stuff can happen if you want to harass somebody. And I think that is in Connecticut. That's been more. Seth, in the last 30 seconds here, uh, I know why as a journalist care about this. We just got it from Mark. But why should non-journalists, the people listening to the show, care about freedom of information? Well, if you if you read seconds. newspapers, if you consume media, you apparently care about freedom inf of information. And if you want the quality of the media you consume to be um, good, to be informative, to enable you to exercise your rights as a citizen, then you want journalists to be able to have um, a full toolkit available to them and not have their FOIA requests um, hung up on appeals and exemptions um, and, you know, fights that are going to take, take so long mm -hmm. to resolve that the news won't even be relevant to you anymore. So I think all citizens have a have a strong interest to the extent they want to participate in government and information being available. Thank you, Mark and Seth, for breaking down all things Freedom of Information Act for us. I'm Frankie Graziano. Today's show produced by Meg Dalton, technical producer Kat Pastor. Thank you so much to Katie Tularski for helping us out in studio. Download The Wheelhouse anytime on your favorite podcast app. This is The Wheelhouse.